Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first 2014 edition of your ongoing conference and teleconference platform, Dialogue Council, Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is Molly Rowan-Leach, and I play host, and it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you all again in this new year, and I hope that everybody had a wonderful and connective holiday time. Before we go into getting to know and hearing from our very special guest this evening, I just want to make a few notes and announcements. Thank you for being here tonight with us. As you know, this is a, a live telecast, and we broadcast all around the nation, and you can access the archives of this series, which is now in its third season, going on its fourth at restorativejusticeontherise.com. And I really want to give a shout out and a thank you to the Peace Alliance and to all the contributors that make this ongoing series possible. This is a media platform like no other that I personally know of where people can openly dialogue truthfully, honestly, and hear from some of the most incredible people in our communities, in our world, who are leading the way with us in transforming justice as we know it. So again, it's a pleasure to have you here. If you'd like to get involved in the dialogue tonight, we encourage that, it's not necessary of course, by pressing one on your telephone keypad. Usually about the half an hour mark is when we start opening up for live questions. Also remember that you can uh, pre-submit pre your questions as you are in the registration process before each of our telecasts. We, we broadcast at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern every Thursday. So join us and welcome if this is your first time. So without further ado, tonight we are speaking with an extraordinary human being, Jacques Verdun. And I just would like to, I know that many of you know who he is, but I just want to say a few words about his background. He is a father, a community organizer, and a teacher. He has his master's in somatic psychology and is the founding director of the Insight Prison Project, which is a nonprofit that has been um, running since 1997. And it, it pioneers innovative in-prison rehab, rehabilitation programs in San Quentin. In 2011, uh, a few years ago, three years ago now, he founded Insight Out, ISO, which provides services and self-development opportunities to prisoners and challenged youth and empowers them to positively transform their predicament. Jacques has also trained former prisoners to act as change agents in the community, working to prevent violence and incarceration. He is a subject matter expert on mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and transforming violence. He has worked in prisons for 16 years, and he serves as a catalyst for statewide prison reform in California. And if you are interested, and I can't see how you wouldn't be, in finding out more about Insight Out, their website is insight-out.org. And it's just a pleasure and an honor to have you here with us tonight, Jacques. Welcome. Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm uh, honored myself. Well, I, I just, as usual, would love to start out 
our conversation with you tonight and with all of us. If you would oblige us with a story and some insight into your own life path and what might have brought you into the extraordinary work that you you do presently. Yeah, yeah, got <clears throat> many many places to pick from there, but um, one of them was a, uh, a dream that I had. Um, about a year into doing some work in San Quentin. Um, and, you know, I gotten to know the man a little bit and they gotten to know me and slowly some of our outer, outer hindrances to getting acquainted were falling away. And I had this dream and I always, when I tell this story, I always say, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these people that has dreams. I'm, I'm a Dutch peasant and I, yeah, but I had this dream, and, and it was about a buffalo in a uh, standing in a prairie, kind of desolate, eerie, quiet place, huge. And he was pawing the earth with his front paw, and uh, was alone there in, in the prairie. And then he would change direction a quarter <clears throat> and do it in, the other direction, went through all four directions, as the Native Americans have it, and then would start over. And and this would repeat and repeat, and it was a very strong image, so much so I woke up and I sat up in bed and said, well, whoa, what, what what is being told here? What, what What is this about? And sitting it and feeling through it, it came to me through the bull of the heart, the um, rather the heart of the bull, uh, that um, the herd was gone, and and it was looking for the herd. And of course, our forefathers have have killed off the buffalo herds, and these herds were roaming through America, you know, in sizes of like hundred thousand per per herd, and kind of drumming the membrane of the nation alive with a sense of belonging and a sense of togetherness. And it occurred to me that, that we, we've, you know, with the herd, we've lost that feeling of belonging together, and we're all looking for it in our own ways. But nowhere else, you know, was that stronger reflected than in the way we do prisons in America, you know, where we throw the shadow, everything we want to be in denial of behind the walls and throw away the key and consider the matter handled. And so I, I got it that, 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 that this was a, a call. And uh, and so I resolved to answer that call and began to uh, create organizations and ways to um, work with that population. So that's that was mm. one story. Another one was that my father was a prisoner in the Second World War. I, I grew up in Holland for my first 21 years. And um, he had a pretty rough time uh, doing forced labor for the Germans in what later became East Germany, close to Poland. And... Um, he, it, there's there's a lot of story there, but to keep it short, 
he uh, he had a walk back when Germany was being bombed and steal for his food and go through a lot of trauma and we would hear him scream in his sleep as kids. Yeah, he's working that stuff through. And then when the Berlin Wall came down, he decided, I want to go back. I want to find my captors or whoever survived from my captors and, and make my peace. And we were, you know, I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood. He was the milkman. I have the, have the living room was the store. So you didn't leave town, let alone the country, right? And... Um, he was resolved, however, so he went with my mom. And um, again, longer story, but did find some of the, uh, the remaining family of his captors and one of the captors, and and sat around. You know, no curriculum, no teleconferences about restorative justice, right? But sat around and uh, and did the work, and they made their peace. Mm. And and he came back a very very changed human being from that experience. And so that was one of the programs I helped pioneer was the uh, uh, program where victims and offenders come together. So those are like two formative stories in in what called me to action. Mm. Very powerful. Thank you so much for sharing. And yeah, you're welcome. It. Um, it brings to mind something I would like to share with our circle tonight, and, and it has to do with the more practical aspect of the very inspiring work that you all do at Inside Out. And um, the Calliopeia Foundation um, worked with you as well as Go Project Films to create an extraordinary book um, called The Path of Freedom, Transformative Programs in America's Prisons. And just so people know, you can go to the insightout.org website to request a free copy of this book. And in the beginning, um, beautifully laid out pages of this book, there are some statistics that are pretty, um, how does one say, uh, <clears throat> well, they're astounding. Um, $52 billion per year um, as of 2011 is spent state spending on corrections. 53% um, uh, of the prisoners are serving for, for violent offenses. 95% of prisoners will be released. And of course, the recidivism rate we, we know is very high um, but I, I personally feel like the programs that, that you have created over the years and that you're currently doing go to the very root and core of how to transform a system, and, and it's said very eloquently on your website, tra transforming it from within. And so I, I'd like to go into this next phase with you by asking if you would take a tour, take us on a little tour about the programs um, and give us some specifics about how it works, who who's involved, and um, maybe even share some some stories. And of course, we'll talk about GRIP as well, which is a primary program. Right. Yeah, if I may, I'd love to round out some of these statistics because sure, I'd love that. I'm sure we all we all go down with some of that 
horror of, of these numbers, then then we can leave them behind and see what right. we can do about them, right? So w- one in 107 Americans is in prison. Um, so one in 34 is under correctional supervision. That means prison or uh, probation or parole. One in 28 school-age children are uh, having a parent incarcerated in America. And on the average, it costs around $60,000 in California and in many other places to uh, incarcerate a person, which is, you know, school board tuition and spare change that you can go to Stanford with, right? Um, And the recidivism rate in California, at least, is around 64%, and in many other states, around that number. So, so this is a system that profits from its own loss, from creating a loss. And uh, it doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't work for prisoners. It doesn't work for victims. It doesn't work for uh, correctional officers, and it doesn't work for taxpayers. You know, in California, we're spending more on incarceration than higher education, for heaven's sake. You know, so what are we telling our young people with these numbers, right? So I, I'm putting that out because, you know, this is much bigger than just uh, those misfits that we've thrown behind the walls. This is how we dignify our suffering as a society when, we're, uh, when crimes are committed uh, with uh, either a way of reteaching our values or simply um, pathologizing people, you know, cases, right? Uh, without wanting to look, what are these crimes a symptom of? Well, you know, how do these crimes represent a greater social breakdown? And just by putting people behind walls, we we don't get to have that dialogue. We don't get to have that investigation. So uh, it's reached a level where, you know, on on a level of say civil rights. Right, because the numbers are worse, much worse for minorities. This is the next place to look. And uh, we're in a trance about how we do prison in this country. Uh, there's no other way to put it. I mean, I mean, yeah, these walls work well, but but there's precious little uh, a realization about what it cost, both, both financially and other ways. So... So it's a bit of an anthropological journey almost to, you know, look on both sides of the walls and, and see the connections. So I just wanted to put, put that out first because I think that creates a little bit more context perhaps. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So the programs that are... Um, I mean, obviously there's some some primary current programs, and maybe we should start with GRIP um, and then go into any others that you'd like to share about. Just just for those of us who may not have uh, a specific idea of what what exactly it is that you're up to, which is extraordinary work. So tell us a bit more. GRIP stands for Guiding Rage into Power. And it has kind of become the best practices 
piece of everything I've learned. I've worked in San Quentin for 17 years and I've been to a lot of other prisons as well. And really, uh, uh, those schools in psychology, you know, had to put a lot of that aside and learn from the inside out from the, the people in there as to, you know, what works really. And um, and so GRIP has four elements. It's a year-long program. You know, behavior isn't formed overnight, so it takes some time to really uh, transform it. And the, these four elements are, number one, uh, understanding and transforming your violence. Uh, number two, developing emotional intelligence. Number three, cultivating mindfulness. And four, understanding victim impact. And so these four elements, I feel, are, are sort of the operative ones in uh, how to shift behavior in a positive way. <coughs> and um, May I yeah, ask a ahead. quick question? Um, what, yeah. It's always fascinating to think about such, such a profound program like this, and these people are mirrored something, you know, on a, on a daily basis that um, to overcome, I mean, this is a really giant question or perhaps it's a rhetorical question, but how do, given that, that there's obviously life experiences, behavior patterns, and psychology that goes into the mix in, you know, multiple various forms for each individual, how, how do they begin to overcome also that they're getting a mirror that says you must be punished or even killed um, for, right. your, for your actions? Yeah, we do all that work actually <laughs> a couple hundred yards away from about 733 people that are waiting for their execution. So that's not lost on anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, if you look at some of the deeper background here, right? I, I heard Kate Prentiss quote the uh, Navajos, and the Navajos speak about somebody who commits a crime as he or she who acts as if they have no relatives. And and so you know that sort of connects with the, the dream that I had, and and so one of the most potent pieces of grip is besides the curriculum is that we create a learning community that uh, begins to hold the man. You know, accountability is is of course the buzzword in rehabilitation, and we we posit that. Accountability is evoked by meaningful relationship, not by you know external moral standards, but by intrinsic motivation generated by meaningful relationship. And so, what we do when we start is we ask people how long they've served. And last year, the program was mainly run with <clears throat> you know violent offenders, maximum security lifers. The lifers with parole, so they have a chance to come out, but they've done mega amounts of time. Like the Friday class, about 32 guys, 
had served 936 years together. And, you know, that includes juvies and juvenile time and jail time, whatever, right? And that becomes the name of the tribe, is 936. And and this tribe begins to hold people as we, uh, you know, begin to learn about um, the pain that have caused us to lash out and commit crimes. And and another tally we do is about how long were you what we call in the curriculum the moment of imminent danger. The moment of imminent danger is the moment between anger and violence, and it's also the moment between craving and using. And it's usually a very short moment, and it's over before you know it. And and there's, you know, what do we say? There's three elements. One is everything speeds up. Two is um, everything intensifies. And three is there's usually a moment of regret afterwards. So the, the, the notion is to identify, which is the acronym, you know, imminent danger, ID, is to ID that moment before it's over. And so the tribe comes together to say, okay, let's count that moment as well. If we count the time we've served, let's count the moment that we were in imminent, imminent danger and crossed the boundary, committed a crime. And so for the, the 936 tribe last year, we came to an hour, 12 minutes and 40 seconds of people saying, here's where I was actually, you know, hijacked by this impulse to commit a crime. So that's pretty impressive, right, to have in one hand 936 years and in the other hand an hour, 12 minutes and 40 seconds. And so the whole program is set up to never lose a moment like that again. And we, we sit in a circle and we articulate the circles that sit around us and evoke them every time we meet. So around us, doing time with us, are the victims and their families, are uh, um, our families, and also uh, people in the community. And so these people are all written down in our tribal book, named. And the tribal book sits on a chair in the group. And so we evoke those people when we do our work and do it in honor of them. And so as you can perhaps begin to feel, this is beginning to create a bond between everyone in the room that is a little bit beyond the ordinary. You know, you're not just in a class or a group or a meeting. You're you're in a tribe, and and it's much like a gang, but flipped. Instead of destructive, it's constructive. And this is, of course, an issue. You know, where the anthropology comes in, where you say, hey, wait a minute, we're all doing time. This theme. You know, how how many of us, you know, don't feel we belong to something in a clear way, in a meaning giving way. And, and and sort of think it's on us, right, personally. But but this is a much larger phenomenon than than our individual struggles with where do we belong. 
and so the the tribal element the the, the bonding piece um, is a very large component of what holds the man right in prison you're held that's the verb you have holding self mm-hmm. so what does that infer is that your container didn't work well and your anguish spilled out and now we're holding you because you obviously didn't know how to do it. And so when we go to work, you know, we, we use that and we say, okay, first of all, let's learn how to hold our horses, right? Let's, let's do some work around impulse control in a way that we can operate and manage. And then let's also learn how to hold ourselves dear enough to care enough which is, you know, again, something we're all doing time on. And that's much harder to learn, right? You, you have to really want that before you can learn that. But for a group of, you know, burly tattooed guys, <clears throat> maximum security offenders, from all, you know, we go to extreme lengths to make sure that all races are represented, all gangs are represented, all creeds are in there. So there's... You can't find a room with more differences than mm-hmm. you could dream up. And it is such an incredible privilege for me and the facilitators to see that it's so possible that contact is the appreciation of differences, as Fritz Perl said. Contact is the appreciation of differences. And when we begin to appreciate those differences, our connection grows. And and this is really what steers the content. Part of the content is that the men uh, sign a pledge that they've put together themselves. And this pledge is, you know, it's about 20 sentences. We have it on the website. And it's really uh, a lot of work has gone into uh, Describing a behavior that leads to live a life that's skillful, nonviolent, spiritually guided, and and socially uh, sound, right? And and so they sign the pledge as a student because uh, the rest of the year they learn the skills on how to keep the pledge. And then in the graduation ceremony, they sign it for life. And we call in the community to do so. We say, okay, these men have done their work. And though it's not up to us to say uh, we, can, we can let them go home, it is up to us to say they're ready to come home. And, and so we had 300 people in the chapel in, in uh, San Quentin to give us their presence to actualize this rite of passage, you know, to make it so that there was a community that says, yes, you know, we, we, we welcome you back. And so the men were in caps and gowns because, you know, why, why only validate academic intellectual intelligence and not emotional intelligence as, as they've learned? So we make a choice. We go the extra mile to get these guys caps and gowns, invite their family, you know, and, and you know, most of them don't even have a swimming certificate, right? So for the family, it's 
it's it's very powerful to see these men honored that way. And uh, and they go through a rite of passage where in in witness of the community they sign the pledge uh, as a lifetime mm. commitment. I just I just want to welcome anyone who is just arriving. We are speaking with, of course, Jacques Verdan of the um, Insight Out dot org and and also the formerly and still running I believe the Insight Prison oh, yeah. Project. And um, just in referral to what we've been speaking about just now, the graduation. There's an incredible slideshow that you can can check out as to uh, just the description of the event and and the feel of what that entailed. It's quite moving, and that's of course at insight-out.org. So for the second half, uh, I just want to remind you. You know, if I may say so. It's because a sure, lot of people mis- mistake that it's it's in, inside spelling i n s i g h t. Because a lot of people think it's like inside. Uh, oh, of course, yes. Thank you so for so for that. Put that in there. Yeah. Insight i n s i g h t dash out dot org. And um, again, there's that incredible slideshow of the graduation that Jacques was just describing and sharing with us, and. Um, a reminder, too, that we're going into the second half of our conversation with Jacques, and if you do have a live question you'd like to, to ask or a comment you'd like to make to open up the conversation, press 1 on your telephone keypad. I also appreciate, as always, the pre-submitted <coughs> questions that have been put in for tonight's dialogue. Um, I want to go back, though, for a moment, Jacques, to the point that you so beautifully made about the fact that we're all doing time in one way or another in in this society. And um, if you could just flesh that out a little bit more, what you mean by that, um, the the idea of punishment and of, of prison as metaphor and the way we incarcerate people and do justice in the United States. Right, right. I've always felt inspired by a statement Dostoevsky made, the Russian author who wrote Crime and Punishment. And and he speaks about, you know, the, the inquiry, the, the question of, are we living our lives in a way that is worthy of our suffering? You know, this whole idea of, of being worthy of your suffering, right? You, you don't get to determine what befalls you, you know, questions of health and death and separation. We all get hand the cards and nobody gets to shuffle the deck. And and so, you know, there's suffering that we've received and suffering we've doled out. And and in some way your dignity arises in and how do you live up to become worthy of both of those types of suffering. And so... You know, the way we do prisons um, doesn't generate much dignity right now. And, and so it's, it's really exciting to be working with men that look for that and that, you know, have taken that into their own hands and in many ways um, have created a, a quality of community and a wisdom and a willingness to be authentic within that community that rivals what 
ever you could find out find on the outside so so you know that's what comes to mind first but another way we're doing time is of course um you know in our mindfulness element we speak about uh, the the difference between having a response or coming from a blind reaction and so the ability to learn to be mindful and, and you know as we say inside to you know do the push-ups to build the muscle of witnessing of observing is really kind of the uh, the mother of all interventions because that's the difference between when you commit a crime or not, right? Uh, can you cultivate a response or are you uh, having a blind reaction? And, uh, you know, that's so on the level of crime, but it's also there for those of us in long-term relationships, right? You're all nodding your head right mm-hmm. now. Um, you know, <laughs> we all have we all we all have triggers, you know, and so to learn how to, you know, we have a, a, a meditation we call sitting in the fire. You know, to where you tolerate, yeah, you, you know, like four strategies. The, the curriculum says you can run, you can hide, you can fight, or you can face. Now, we do a variation of of all of that in our younger years, and then. If you're lucky, you get interested in, in facing this stuff, coming to acceptance. And so you learn, we learn how to sit in the fire, burn clean, and leave ashes. Because the alternative is when you don't learn how to process these, these difficult emotions, you end up uh, medicating them in some way, you know, either with substances or behaviors, right? Anything in excess can become um, a medication. And so there's a lot of befriending of demons there that that we do that has a lot to do with how we're all doing time. And, and often when people come to visit, which happens regularly, um, they're moved not because they're so inspired of the guys doing that work, but because they're doing their work so rigorously that it evokes whatever else is unfinished in your own life. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it's really kind of fun to see that almost clinic element of, of what happens when people come to visit the program. Mm. It's it's very interesting what you're sharing about, um, you know, re- the recognition of uh, and the, the ability to respond instead of react and, um, in a little bit, I'd also like to look at how similar that feeling is to the recognition of the pattern um, and breaking the cycles and, and breaking, mm-hmm. you know, on the other end, like we recognize finally that we do have this pattern that caused us to, in that minute second, to either crave or react or whatever. But um, I would like to open up the lines for a moment and then come back around to, to that. Sure. Welcome, Donald. You're live. Hi. Hi. Uh, I. Uh, very interesting. I. I spent. I had a couple of years working in Lexington in the Federal Narcotics Hospital as part of my psychiatry training, and I owed two two years to the government. 
And uh, I'm 77. I've retired now for a number of years. But I found in my practice there are many skills that make a difference. But the one skill that seemed to be the most powerful was when we could teach people the skills of liking oneself. People that like right. themselves have a very different way of dealing with things. And I, I wonder to what degree do you, to have you come to the idea of actually teaching the skills of liking yourself. I, I personally think that there are a number of skills that are easily taught, and and I think it's so important. I just wondered to what degree you might have <coughs> addressed that issue. Yes, thank you. No, good observation. Um, the uh, the whole idea of self validation versus looking for external approval, right? Yeah, um, we spend so much of our life, you know, as children for years, we 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 can't get along without it because we're helpless. <laughs> but we get into the habit of depending on the outside for approval instead of learning to take responsibility for ourselves. Right, right. We look at at it as a a lot of. Uh, learning to make peace with what is, you know, uh, again, the, the facing element that, that I spoke about earlier. And, and the strongest way that we know how to work with that is to really guide people into a more embodied awareness experience of their being. Because, you know, there's a level of truth in the body that is hard to uh, get around. And and so, uh, in the meditation and in the yoga that is worked into the program, uh, there's a lot of focus on really learning how to be with what is right here. And that experience of, you know, tending to the ground of your being and learning how to connect with that has... Uh, um, a shift takes place from, from what I called outer validation to inner validation. If you're really here with what is, you know, there's an inherent capacity of the body for wisdom that emerges, that is right there. It's nature. It's your own little biosystem, you know, desperately waiting for you to connect with it. And then the quality of that connection is really what what we feel uh, is what is the closest thing to what you could call simply love. You know, the, not the content and the moral obligation and the, uh, all important things, but the, actually the real quality of connection on a spiritual level. To learn how to rest in the ground of your being and be with what is, is such a deep validation of who you are that it. Uh, comes closest to love, and 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 so when you validate yourself that way, it it becomes very automatic to be empathic with other people, because uh, on the level of body, uh, we, we have everything in common. You know, it's when we leave that that our differences begin to take place. So that's what I would say to that. Hmm. Thank you for that question, Donald. Yeah, good question. I want to go to another question here. Um, Ken asks, what are useful methods to enhance social-emotional intelligence in groups, communities of people, 
especially across cultural divisions. And he, he kind of elaborates here and asks, um, especially among political representatives and public leaders, given the power of special interests and their propaganda and lobby efforts that push them and public opinion in the other direction. Um, it's an interesting question in, in, to me in the way that it relates to um, certainly the, the tension and resistance that we might see in the political uh, environment and conversation around, for example, um, the power of restorative justice and um, the argument perhaps that it isn't tough enough on crime, which as many of right. us know is false. So given that you have such a depth of wisdom in emotional, socio-emotional intelligence and such, would you, would you be kind enough to answer that question? It's funny when you say that. You know what comes <laughs> up to me? It's like, it's like, hey, call my girlfriend. See what she, she, if she's impressed. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm as much a student of, of it, honestly. No, no false modesty. Well, certainly. Here. I'm as much a student of it uh, as anybody, but... You know, Thank I've you. had the privilege of, of being given a, a lot of people's <laughs> despair, and, and so that's, mm. that's really been eye-opening to me. And you know, one of the simpler ways to answer that, <clears throat> I don't know if it makes sense, but it does to people who are engaged with it, is to tell stories. You know, people come together around telling stories to each other. To really uh, know one another is, is to find yourself in a place where things are revealed by sharing, uh, particularly when experiences have been life-altering. And so um, that's a strong element as to what bonds people uh, and the other one is is the one I just mentioned. You know, is, is to focus on the embodied uh, dimension of being together. You know, so much of our meetings don't honor that, right? You sit in chairs and you got wires connected to you or screens in front of you, and it's not exactly what brings people together. Um, and then on a deeper level, I mean, this is not hard to imagine between government leaders, but what I've noticed works very well for us is when uh, we disclose whatever it is we have shame around to one another out loud. Because, mm. you know, sh shame is such a strong organizing element in, in what keeps us separate. And 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 there's a lot more shame than you're aware of when you when you haven't started looking at that and really earnestly inquiring into that. And there's a generosity in in sharing that, and there's an experience, a discovery of how much of it we have in common. That really um, takes out a lot of pretense and a lot of protection and a lot of defense and uh, I, I really have this from observation I don't have that out of some kind of moral persuasion or mm -hmm. Christian belief in confession you know it's really mm. out of experience that mm. 
when people begin talking around issues that they have shame around, that a, a whole new register opens. And uh, and and uh, because you know there's there's a part we talk about in the curriculum about what we call image dying, which is an element of what leads to escalate into violence, the experience of image dying, uh, which is an experience of humiliation, you know, where your self-image is, is shamed or is not found worthy or is not imagined worthy. And you then have to resubstantiate that movement of going down with that uh, with being violent. You know, this is the difference between rage and power mm. that the program speaks of, right? Guiding rage into power. And, uh, you know, I've done a bit of studying around the profile of what people have in common who have created these mass shootings in schools or malls or, or in, you know, wherever, right? And you very often see people that are not socially bonded, that have gone through experiences of shame and feeling put down or bullied or made fun of. And uh, uh, they're in such pain and so isolated with it that they literally feel that through their violence, other people can feel their pain. You know, it's like they're expressing their pain by wanting other people to have pain. And, you know, there's, there's a, a sadness about that, uh, which refers to the isolation that someone is in, but also to the humiliation, or, you know, which is a form of shame, that uh, um, somebody is being socially denied a place. And so it's interesting to see how often that those are the common denominators on the what we call the, the mental cases, right? The, the, the people that lose it and create some kind of mass massacre. Hmm. Well, let's open up the lines again here. We have more questions um, in our circle. Robin, a warm welcome to you. You're live. Uh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call, and thank you. Uh, Jacques, for the wonderful and uh, profound and incredibly needed work that you're doing. Um, my question is a little bit more logistical, which is I'm interested to know, um, do you facilitate alone with many other people at the same time? And are a lot of other people doing this work and other institutions, you, you refer right. to a curriculum, so um, so you have a, you have a curriculum that other people could um, look at and draw from. Yeah, I'd be happy to speak to that. the uh, The program is uh, facilitated by uh, a teacher or an outside person. And also, in our case, by some inmate facilitators. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know the whole setup is created for maximum buy-in by the uh, participants, so that they really feel it's their program. Uh, 
you know, I, I've learned that no ideology is actually more powerful than for these prisoners to outright feel ownership of the program. Because a lot mm -hmm. of rehab, though, though well-meant, is, is somewhat infantilizing, actually, in its approach to, to prisoners. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one part of the question, is, or the answer is, is it, there's one facilitator, and depending on the size of the group, <clears throat> and there's one or more co-facilitators, preferably among the inmates. And um, the, uh, the program has run for a couple of years now in San Quentin, and it's like I said, it's a combination of best practices that I've learned over, my, over the span of my career. And this year we're creating a, a video instructional series and a workbook. Uh, because it would be the best train to trainer piece we could have. And it might even be able to go out by itself to some of these prisons where, you know, that are in the boonies that that have a hard time attracting uh, volunteers or, or professionals mm -hmm. to teach. Mm -hmm. um, somehow somebody in Bosnia learned about us and translated the curriculum and and asked me to train people there. Uh -huh. That's great. Run it over there. Yeah, it's, it's intriguing. Um, so this year we, we've really um, chosen to um, build capacity to uh, be able to respond to uh, the, the amount of interest there is from, from people that learn about what we do. The, the danger I found uh, over time would be you know to start responding to all these calls for the program and get the card in front of the horse and get done in by your own success, right? Mm -hmm. So so we're really kind of hunkering down this year to create that video instruction series to rewrite the curriculum into a workbook, and then next year I'll go out and and uh, serve more people. Terrific. Yeah. Great. Again, thank you so much for the wonderful work you're doing. Thank you. And thank you, Robin, for the wonderful work you're doing. I just yeah. have to mention this. I hope you don't mind. Um, Robin Kasargian from the Lionheart Foundation. And um, just really honoring the work of the Lionheart Foundation and uh -huh. the extraordinary free training, in fact, that they are offering in the near future here um, and so, Robin, could you just say how people can find out more about what you're up to? Sure. They can just go to lionheart.org. And Great. Um, right on the home page, there's an indication in a white box that there's a, a free training being offered, so they can check it out there. And the free training specifically is for? It, it's for, it's to, uh, really to nurture prison volunteers to go in and and um, you know, in a, in a different format, but very much what Jacques is talking about: emotional literacy and uh, mindfulness practice. It's a curriculum um, that really tries to nurture the same type of uh, deep healing that mm. um, that your guest is doing so magnificently. And and with uh, quite a bit of work with youth as well, right? 
Yes, the, the training isn't geared to the youth. The train, training is geared to, pris, uh, to prison volunteers and, and to adult prisoners. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being a part of uh, the conversation tonight, Robin. Um, thank you. Yeah, that's an honor to have Robin there. <laughs> I know a much valued colleague mm. there that is 25 plus years in the field and, and mm. has done tremendous service with, with her program. Well, we have more questions. And, you know, Jacques, before we close tonight in about six minutes, um, I would love to be able to, to cover the change agents at least. We haven't gotten to that yet tonight and wondered if you might think of a story around um, some of the change agents that have been a part of the program and um, what they've experienced. But before that, <laughs> I'd like to welcome you, Emily. You're live. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for taking my call. I am listening to Jacques speak and thinking of all of the children that I teach in the elementary schools that I work in. Um, many of them come from families who have had experience with residential schools within Canada, and the tremendous impact that that has generationally exhibits itself every day. We are very good at acknowledging that suspending children doesn't work, that sending them home to, or to homes that are, are experiencing turmoil, who are experiencing violence, um, doesn't work. But we're not so good at programs within schools to help when children can't be in the classroom because of all of these things that they're experiencing at home. And I'm wondering, I know that this doesn't directly relate to prisons, but perhaps it's a preemptive action that could be taken. <laughs> wondering if you know of or have experience with programs within schools um, that can help address some of the things that you're talking about now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the, the kids that we work with aren't turning into the adults that you work with. Exactly. No, I'm very glad you asked that question because it's very close to my heart. And, you know, at some point in the class, guys would say, man, I wish I'd known this when I was 15, you know. Mm -hmm. And I kept hearing that, and then finally I said, well, let's go tell them. You know, so we mm -hmm. took some uh, uh, lifers that had gone out and um, had been trained in the curriculum and worked in a youth centrum and worked in a high school. And, you know, say in high school, we got exactly what you talked about. You get the, the shit list, right? You get the list of mm -hmm. the people, the kids that they don't know what to do with, that have mm -hmm. been barred from classes or barred from athletic programs because of their behavior. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, have them, you know, have a go at it. Good luck. And so we have, and, and uh, you know, you find out very simple things that teachers don't know. And the teacher says, well, he just sleeps in my class. He doesn't give a damn, you know. And then mm -hmm. you start talking, and, you know, this kid lives with seven other uh, people in a two-bedroom apartment, and he's in the living room. That's his place. So everybody's mm -hmm. up late, and, and there's drinking going on, and, 
he can't get his homework done, so he sleeps during class time, <laughs> right? <laughs> but very common. But the, all right. So the the academic level doesn't often reach into the living reality of of these kids, and schools, you know, don't meaningfully connect with what's alive for them. Mm-hmm. And and so I found it very powerful to bring some of these guys that have been there and done that, but also have the, the training to guide these kids to uh, do the work with them. And it's it's very moving often. You know, I sort of take more of a backseat there, but to, to see these interactions, because a lot of it is also the bonding, you know, where... where mm-hmm an older male with a younger male spend time together and and some healing begins to take place because um, that's kind of at the heart of what, what's causing some of this behavior. You know, there's a dad takes you by the hand and says, here's where the buck stops and here's, you know, how the world's mm-hmm. the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so we found that particularly when we do intensives, you know, we go camping or and write poetry together and uh, that a lot of uh, healing takes place. Because mm-hmm. a lot of these kids are just pissed off because they're too hurt to know where to look on how to get their life together. Mm. Right. If I might also um, humbly add and honor the work of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, and Fanya Davis, Destiny yeah. Shabazz, and and others doing such uh, incredible day-to-day work with with kids, um, and our certainly joy, the, yeah. right ourjoy.org over in Oakland. That's one of the most extraordinary programs that is up and running, uh, as well as on the East Coast. People can look to. Lauren Abramson and her team at the Community Conferencing Center over in Baltimore. And they also were featured on Fixing Juvie Justice, which was a PBS documentary. And Jacques, I know I noticed on the website that you also have a PBS special. And I wondered if you might say a, a few more things, uh, a few things about um, about the PBS special, and then maybe we could close with a very brief story. I think it's important people know that there's a change agent and reentry aspect to your programs, and sure. and then we'll um, say good evening. Sure. Okay. Thank you, Emily. Yeah. By the way, for your question. Thank and you for very your... much. Yes, Emily. The heart of the matter. Good question. Right. From prison to pipeline, we call it the the, pri- the prison to school pipeline. School to prison pipeline. All right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, there's we 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 did get some media last year, which mm-hmm. is kind of fun, you know, to break through the walls with that. Um, we have a five-minute piece uh, on the homepage that was made by inmates, and our current uh, video instructional series is also shot by inmates and victims. You know, so it's really kind of wild that. Both parties have teamed up to to do the production there, um, and then uh, PBS uh, through the program, one of their religious programs, 
had an interest in, in what we do and spent a couple of days, actually came to last year's graduation and then said, well, I guess we have the end of the story. Let's come back and get the other parts. And uh, and and you can see a little bit of the work done in the class. And, um, and then uh, what's that program? PBS NewsHour saw it and felt that they wanted to show it in the context of all the debate that was going on on, uh, I almost said disarmament because that would be the right word, right? But what I'm trying to say is the laws around con gun control. Um, and so they showed it in context of that whole conversation as, uh, guess what, you know, downtown San Quentin actually has some answers around the epidemic of violence that is grabbing the country. Uh, so that's how we got featured there. Mm. So then, then the very important program, or at least the the placement of and willingness of these men who yeah. are are formerly incarcerated. And we, I think so many of us know that reentry is a real issue. <laughs> and it sounds to me like what you've got in place is an extraordinary program, not only for people coming out, but also for the men themselves who are the change agents. So let's close right. with a, a snapshot of what that is and maybe anything you'd like to offer around one of them or you know, a, a short story um, snapshot. Yeah, one, one anecdote that comes to mind I'm, I'm fond of telling, actually, because it covers so much territory is, uh, <clears throat> you know, reentry starts on the inside. A lot of people don't understand that. We actually f refuse to call it reentry. We call our brand new entry. And so on the inside, uh, we've put some people together, uh, younger prisoners with older prisoners. We had one shot caller for the Crips, shot caller being you know, somebody in charge, Crips being a gang in Los Angeles. Um, so we had a shot caller for the Crip, Crips who um, came to class and sort of sat there with his arms folded, didn't say anything, but came back every week. And we put him together with a younger prisoner that he remembered from his neighborhood. And then he started to go to work with this younger prisoner. And uh, one day, uh, shot caller put up his arm and said, I got something. And I said, well, what did you get? He said, hurt people, hurt people. He said, and I know because I was in the room as a six-year-old when my mother shot my alcoholic father who was abusive to her. And we were surrounded by the police who which didn't know quite what was going on in there for 12 hours straight. And I've never known what to do with that pain, and I've lashed out from it. And then his apprentice, which was this really big muscle guy um, named Brother G, was there for domestic violence, said, I got something too. I said, well, what did you get? He said, healed people, healed people. He said, and I know because this brother here has been teaching me how to live and how to heal my violence. And then both guys wept in the room, and so did the rest of us sitting around. You know, that was just so deep and so true. Mm -hmm. And in eight words, 
you know, heard people heard people, healed mm. people healed people, describes our whole program. Mm. So, so, so that becomes a title of a, a good chunk of our literature there. And so then, you know, we began to think about, God, if that's so powerful here, then, you know, could it also serve on the outside? And that's where the idea of change agents came in. You know, we, we call it turning the stigma into a badge where, you know, the monsters, right, the people we've thrown away, discarded, come to give back to the communities they took from. And, and you know, th- these are our kids, right? We, we sort of s- seem to think that they're other people's children, but they're, they're all our kids too. And so, uh, you know, to be able to witness the the tenderness between a youngster and, a, and an OG, you know, which uh, is slang for uh, original gangster, which is what the kids call some of the older prisoners, um, is is just been so beautiful. You know, it's like the elders have come home. You know, you know, the. the some of that work happens in juvenile institutions with with some of our men that have graduated and and uh, it's very powerful you know to see that connection and it's difficult straight out difficult to persuade uh, school officials and 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 people who run juvenile institutions to let them in because they may still be on parole or they don't like their rap sheet or whatnot, but just like there is in addiction recovery, you know, where you get sponsored by a former addict, there's a lot here to be done in amplifying the people that we've earmarked as being part of the problem into being part of the solution. And and yes, it needs guidance and it needs a, a solid container, but there's a lot of resource there that... Um, I think has to be part of, of the the next round of, of innovative work that um, you know begins to address the mounting amount of young people that get lost in the system. I have hope. <laughs> <laughs> Good. In the human spirit, and it's certainly in the work that you bring through yourself and your team and, and of course, the, the courageous men as well as women who are a part of Insight Out and the Insight Prison Project. And it's really been quite a pleasure and extraordinary to converse with you tonight. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, Jacques. And I yes, just want to mention, ag- again, there's a latest news um, when you go to insightout.org, that's I-N-S-I-G-H-T-out.org, there's a lot of resources there. As you know, in, earlier in the conversation, we spoke of the Path to Freedom, or the Path of Freedom. That's a free book that you can request um, that, that is quite extraordinary. It's about transformative programs in America's prisons. Go to Insight out.org to get your free copy of that um, thanks to the Calliopeia Foundation and Go Project Films as well as Inside Out and of course Jock 
for that work. And then you know, I really ought to mention Fleet Mall also there. Because, and Fleet uh, Mall, of course. Yeah. yeah. Fleet Mall, extraordinary. And he's, he's also been an, a guest on this series uh, a couple oh, years back. Yes. So for those of you who are interested in over 110 archives um, that relate to restorative justice on the rise, they are open source and free to anyone who is interested in listening to them and sharing them. If you'd like to make copies and use them for your classes, whatever it is that you think might work for distributing the information of these valuable dialogues and conversations that we've had over three years, please do so by going to restorativejusticeontherise.com. And I mentioned the Peace Alliance earlier as a, a major contributor to this series, as well as to the community involved in these conversations. And I just want to encourage people to please go and check out the action teams at peacealliance.org. Action teams are forming in every community in every state in the United States, and there's a great network that's building surrounding um, influencing political will and mobilizing all the great work that people are doing in their own areas. So um, there is some restorative justice specific work that's happening within the action teams, which is very exciting. And I want to acknowledge Dan Kahn, who is the National Field Director of the Peace Alliance, and <coughs> invites everyone on his behalf to check out more about those teams, again, at peacealliance.org. So Look forward to seeing you in the next week and ongoing every Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach. Thanks again for being a part of this important dialogue. Good night, everyone. Thanks, Molly.